Hot off the press from Maybelline New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Cocoa Zing, and more, an extra-large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lifter Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP. The legends are true. Overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece with nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Broadcasting from the Rock and Roll Bomb Shelter. Yeah, I'm ready. I wanna rock! Surrounded by radioactive biscuits and the world-famous Rock Eyes. Located 40 feet beneath the radio station. It's the Big Fat American Rock Show. With your host, the Doc of Rock, the Professor, everyone's favorite mad music magician, crazy uncle, and your best friend in the whole wide world, Zach Martin. Somebody brought up the idea of a Genesis reunion. Yes. And, well, what was your answer? Well, it's not a new idea. I think that uh, I would be up for it. Yeah, you know, I've 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 noticed that. You know, the line is is that most guys in the band say um, they wouldn't rule it out. Um, I would say, well, you know, bring it on. Yeah, bring it for on. Sure. I agree with that. Uh, but I have no news. You know, there's nothing I can report to you. Whatever you've read is, I think, probably entirely spurious. I mean, there could be a reformation of any version of that band at any time, including you. That's there right. You are, You're using see? some great vocabulary words, by oh, the way. Yeah. I'm liking oh, this. There you go. Oh, yeah. So, oh. um, it's it's possible, but improbable. Meanwhile, oh. I honor the music because I love that early music. Well, here's the thing, too. I, I remember Mike Rutherford. He was here with Mike and the Mechanics last yeah. year, and he was yeah. he made a little tease about 50th yeah. anniversary kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what that means, but anything is possible. Now, that could mean a remaster reissue of stuff in archives who knows indeed yes but uh, i would like to see a genesis reunion once again you guys think about the lineup that you had in the early 70s mid 70s your super group at that time yeah well i think um it's it's very strange you know i think all guys that are in big bands uh, you join a little band at some point and then exactly and and then it, it it surpasses all expectations and then you have Yes, you have the possibility of doing that for the rest of your life, or you owe your allegiance to music in general. And I, I didn't want to get pensioned off. It was a great band, you know, wonderful while it was. With Steve Hackett, he's got his new album that's out. Wuthering... Wuthering Nights. Wuthering Nights. Wuthering is uh, the English term for blistering. Blustering. Wuthering. Yeah, blustering. Yeah. I'm sorry, blistering. We, that's something else. That's caused by yeah. something completely different. You want yeah. to stay away from that. Now, you're with Chris Squire. That's right. Of yes. Yeah. You're um, checking out Led Zeppelin. So, you know, we're gonna about we're about to play the song that you heard that night. And I'd like you to play disc jockey and tell everybody. Okay, well that's an extraordinary evening. Um, actually, it was, the funny thing was, Chris was playing on that. There was another band that had himself and and Keith Emerson. Wow. And and, and he said, Are you coming to that? So I said, well, you know, I, I don't think I've, I've got a ticket. And he said, well, why don't you drive me there, hold my guitar, be my roadie for the night, and come on in. So we did. 
that's what we did. So I was his roadie for the night. That's I, cool. I held his guitar. You got in for free. We got in for free. Um, and it was extraordinary. They were extraordinary that yeah. night. I mean, I, I'd worked with, um, with John Paul Jones in uh, Japan with a band that had Nuno Betancourt, oh. Paul Gilbert, mm -hmm. very interestingly. Mike hey. Souter of the Suiters. That was great. That was, you know, this kind of Anglo-American band. We did the thing called Guitar Wars, which was... Uh, oh, extremely. yeah. You remember uh -huh. that? I don't yeah, know. Of course. Yeah, and I remember Paul GTR, Jones. by the way. John Paul Jones, that's right. John that's Paul it. Jones. John Paul Jones. Great yeah. one. Admiral yes. in, the, in the Navy. Yeah. And he also was a member of Led Zeppelin. <laughs> but this is one of those mesmerizing <laughs> songs that we're going to yeah. play that you heard there that night. Yes. We have the live recording from my garage do, right do, here. It's, it said Tales Out. You saw right. me rewind it. We're going to play it from the reel to reel. Nobody does Go that. Go for it. It was a great gig. They were, they were phenomenal. And considering they hadn't played together for a zillion years um they were great what i really miss yeah. is greg lake i was Me i too. actually cried when he passed away well, i now, didn't expect it i knew okay. he was sick if i am i allowed to name drop a little bit yeah go I, ahead I, I jump went, away okay well i went to a a, a, a king crimson it, it was i think at the first time they'd had a reunion to celebrate some stuff that had been recorded many years ago at the Marquee in 1969. Now, I attended a lot of those concerts before they made that first incredible album. And, but all these years later, I'd met most of them and spent time together. Ian MacDonald and I were pals. Um, I'd done a little bit of work with him and Michael Giles and, and Pete Sinfield and Robert Fripp. I'd never met Greg, but at this do, I met him and I was introduced by Ian and Greg shook my hand and he held it for a very long time, shaking it. And <laughs> no words passed between us, but it was just this idea of absolute solidarity. And because I'd spoken, I like to think that I'd praised uh, Crimson publicly, you know, um, I thought they were wonderful. Uh, that first incarnation of that band and, you're, you know, Greg is irreplaceable there's something oh, about uh his voice his persona uh huge influence and you know we're, we're just reading off the names of, of of the fallen here um but you know they're all british guys you know we're all roughly the same age we're right. not we're not that so far distant well i would years. say uh, for me um all of those guys are pretty much they they're part of me they're in my heart because i grew up listening to all of their music uh, all their songs uh, the music um so you really you know what it is you go from this mortal life that we have here and then you become eternal you're, you're with the ages and that's where they are right now. It must be one hell of a super group. I, th I, I think there will be a, a great super group up there. Uh, yeah. There already is. Okay, who's, who's in your super group in heaven? Okay, well, another, another pal who passed on, uh, Jack Bruce. Oh my gosh, yeah. He and I were, were due to form a band with Keith. We mentioned that we rehearsed for three days and Simon Phillips was gonna be part of it. So yeah, you know, um, and I, I spoke to Jack, I think a year before he passed, we played a festival together in, in uh, Bosa Edmonds, which is near Norfolk. Um, yeah, not Virginia. Norfolk, not anyone. Norfolk, Virginia, no, no, the, the, the original one in, in, uh, in the old country. And um, I remember I'd written to him because I knew that, he, that he'd had a, a, a you know, he'd, he'd not had great health and mm -hmm. um, so it was not looking great for him, but anyway, and I wrote to him and said, you know, because we'd, we'd hoped to work together and, 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 and it hadn't quite worked out. And, and I said, well, whatever else, your work is eternal. And I was referring to Cream because 
there's just something about the vocals that he did with Cream. Never mind the bass playing, which was extraordinary. And I think Cream were an incredible trio. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I really meant that, you know. And funnily enough, I'd, I'd taken place. Uh, ooh, hang on. A few months ago, his son called me up, Malcolm Bruce, and said, "Would you be prepared to do a retrospective a, a, a tribute to him in in London at the Shepherd's Bush Empire?" And I said, "Yep." jumped at it and he said is there any particular tune you'd like to do and I said Spoonful now I know they didn't write that that was a, a Howling Wolf song and I think was it a Willie Dixon original I believe I think anyway. I, I mean Willie Dixon might have wrote it and then Howlin' Wolf recorded it because yep. that's how it used to go with yep. a lot of the blues songs yeah I, I could see but, that but I, I and, and I remember Jack I said I remember seeing you at, at a club when the band was first formed this was Cream and I, and I thought they played that 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 place a lot of times it was called the Ram Jam Club in London and he said yeah I remember that one that was a good gig and I said it was a damn good gig you know I mean they were so they were on fire they were just they were just brilliant and and I remember this live version that they'd done of um, Spoonfall and Jack's voice just sort of shaking the rafters of the place so that was the one I I wanted to do um, and and we did and uh, yeah you know, just one of those things. It, some songs just blaze for you, don't they? So I think early lovers of Cream, um, there were there were the great songs, the ones that Pete Brown wrote with with Jack. There were the uh, the other ones that Eric wrote, of course. You know, but I, there was something about that first album, and I know Eric was very disappointed with that. But for the rest of us, the fans, the true owners of the music, are always the fans, and that was just great you know i just remember listening to that endlessly with pals and zeppelin and uh we were there when it was officially you know the thing for armit ertigan in london yeah uh, the o2, o2 yeah which happens to be a great album oh it is fantastic uh, celebration day i think it's called that's right we were standing there with chris squire at the late great oh my chris gosh squire, one of the best bass players ever ever and um we were standing right at the back and it was still very loud and as they went into Kashmir. Um, uh, Chris said to me, this is my favorite Zep song. And I said, well, it's mine too, you know? And there's just something about that, that was something, the simplicity, but the drive of that, you know, something elemental and absolutely wonderful about that track. So, um, yeah. So, yes, and Genesis shared a love of that. And it's, I think it's usually influential it seems to bridge that thing you know trance music yeah and, uh, your website is uh www.hackettsongs.com i like Hackett that hackett songs hack it with two t's that's it you yes. gotta have the two t's sophia's mission inspires faith hope and charity to people living on the autistic spectrum and with disabilities sophia's in association with new hd media creates meaningful opportunities and jobs for those with additional needs many of these jobs can be performed from home and are life-changing for neurodivergent and special needs communities for more information go to sophia i'm zach martin this is the big fat american podcast with mark stein i want to tell you the story about the very first record album my mom ever gave me. I was about maybe 10. It was 1974. And my mom decided right. to get me my first album for my birthday. It was an LP. And, you know, back then we didn't have a lot of money. So she saved up for it. And she hands me Vanilla Fudge. And she goes, this is Vanilla Fudge. You think Led Zeppelin's so cool? Let me tell you something. Led Zeppelin opened up for Vanilla Fudge back in the day. 
Yeah, man. Uh, you know, at one point, Vanilla Fudge had three albums on the charts simultaneously in the late 60s. And this band called Led Zeppelin uh, came to America. And Jimmy Page had broken up the Yardbirds and they uh, signed this new band called Led Zeppelin to Atlantic Records. We were label mates and, uh, and I was over at my manager's house and uh, they started playing a couple of these new tracks. I remember specifically, it was Dazed and Confused. I was like, man, I was just listening to this guy, Robert Plant, you know, doing this really cool vocal following the slide of Jimmy Page's guitar. It was just so cool sounding. Everybody was going, wow. So, well, these guys are going to open for you. You know, so it was 1968. From what I remember, a station out in Denver, KLZ, uh, was involved in that. And you guys, you basically held out. You said, we're not going to play. Uh, Barry Fay, that was the guy's name. Barry Fay, yeah. Right. He was the concert promoter. And you guys said to, to him that you're not going to play unless uh, they have Led Zeppelin open up for you guys in Denver. And then from what I understand, you were even willing to give Led Zeppelin some of the money that you would have made that night. Well, that's, that's the only way Barry Fay said the only way we're gonna, that he would let them play is if we gave up some of our money to give it to them to pay for expenses or whatever it was. And that's, uh, and that's basically what happened. It was Denver. I think it was December 26th in Denver in 1968. And then they went on to open for us and a whole you know, bunch of dates all over the Northwest. And uh, in the beginning, they were they were just starting out, and they were a bunch of spastic kids, you know. <laughs> was, I'm telling you, man. I mean, Bonzo, you know, John Bonham would knock on our door and say, "Oh, can I come in, man? Can I meet you guys?" And yada yada. And I said, "Yeah, come in," you know. And Robert Plant and Paige was playing through a small amp. He was playing a Telecaster, and Robert was like a little bit spastic the way he moved on stage. And we were talking because we were we were you know we, we were in our prime back then. Uh, we were like really hot to fudge and uh they were watching the way we were performing and they took a lot of this stuff from us you know yeah. the confidence from a stage a stage act but. it does make sense what you're talking about because the thing that vanilla fudge had in common with led zeppelin was you made your fame by covering other artists like you keep me hanging on now led zeppelin's first album their debut album were all covers of old blues songs before we go any further what i usually do instead of me telling everybody who you are I've I got a, a, a different way uh, uh, about me. I like the artist to tell us their rock and roll resume. Mm. Because then you really get a better understanding of who you're talking to, if you're listening for the very first time, or seeing it on video, because they might have heard your name, mistaken with somebody else who is with maybe Tom Petty. Mm -hmm. But who right. is yeah. Jeffrey Lee Campbell? Give us your rock and roll resume. Uh, grew up in North Carolina, started playing in bands. My first paying gig, I was 13. I'd played in bands since I was about nine or 10. Uh -huh. I started getting paid to play. And cut my teeth at fraternity parties and proms and, you know, private parties and all that. Uh, so I grew up on the Almond Brothers and Stax Motown. So, you know, it's funny. I go back and listen to tapes of our junior high and high school band. We were playing the Four Tops and the Almond Brothers back to back. It didn't yeah. matter, you know. Ain't no woman goes right into whipping post. Who cares? You know, we just play what we play. So I spent my junior high, high school years playing guitar. Went to the University of Miami to study jazz. Uh, I'm glad I went, but jazz was not my thing. So uh -huh. I went back to North Carolina. Continued to play in cover bands and wrote original music along on the side. Uh, I had a college buddy who lived up here in New York. And he invited me to New York to visit. Came to New York, fell in love. Moved up here to give it a shot. Figured I'd give it a year. I've been here 31 years. What do you love about New York City? I like well, to know. What, maybe is what did I what did I love about New York City? After 31 years, a lot of my romance might be squeezed out yeah. of it. But to me, the uh, you know, I kind of joke. Uh, 
that it appeals to my ego, my grandiosity, the city right. and all that. But in fairness to my exceptionalism, people are really talented here. And I like being around the best of the best. Now you go from uh, North Carolina, you move up to New York City, mm -hmm. and I guess it would take some adjustment because all night long you'll hear sirens going mm -hmm. off and just a lot of noise. and It's very hard to, to sleep when you first get here. And after a while, much like what you told me about the 2K, Mm -hmm. Sort of drowned it out, and then when it's quiet, you're wondering what's you wonder what's wrong, right? Oh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. If I go to visit people out in the country or whatever, and I think it was from on the waterfront where Marlon Brando said, uh, "The crickets make me nervous." That's the way I feel now. I go out in the quiet, and I'm like, "Wow, it's too quiet and too dark out here." Whereas the city, I, you know, the noise is my number one complaint about the city. Yeah, the dirt right after it, but um, you can't live without it now. Uh, my theory's always been by the time you're sick of New York, you're addicted to it. Right. So leave at your own peril. So now you're in Hell's Kitchen, you're on Broadway. You make this transition from, I guess, playing in these various bar bands down south, come up to New York City. You make it on the Great White Way, which is really a very difficult thing to do. Not only do you make it on Broadway, but you're on a couple of long-running shows. Mm -hmm. What is the secret of being successful on Broadway? Because anybody listening or seeing this right now that's aspiring to be a Broadway star or mm -hmm. just make a living on Broadway really wants to know the answer to that question. Well, ironically, when I first moved here, my first job was selling candy in Broadway theaters because I couldn't find any job, any work as a musician. It was so hard. So I was a guy standing in the back selling you overpriced drinks and candy and did that and ended up, you know, finding good work. But now I'm back on Broadway and it's really tough. And it's funny because Broadway didn't used to be that coveted of a gig when there was a lot of recording work here mm -hmm. and jingle work. That was the jobs people wanted. Broadway was kind of where guys got to go away and grow old gracefully. Now the guys come straight out of Juilliard, straight out of Berkeley. Guys, somebody 25 years old playing Broadway shows. Well, and some of the actors, one of the, I think the biggest misconception about a Broadway stage actor is that they make a lot of money. And I saw what the union rates are. Mm -hmm. It's not as much as everybody thinks. Well, and it's eight shows a week. Right. Yeah. And sometimes two shows a day. Yeah, or the Rocket, the Rockettes during Christmas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they might do five shows a day. And, yeah. and have you ever seen the Rockettes? Yeah, sure. Unbelievable. I don't know about you, but. I think it'd take one show before I'd get too many blisters on my foot and I'd be, I'm out of here. I'm currently in a show called School of Rock, and right. one of the guitar players there also does the Radio City Orchestra. Okay. So in the holiday season, he will do a 10 a.m. at Radio City, run to the Winter Garden, do a 2 p.m., run back to Radio City for 5 p.m., come back to the Winter Garden for 8 p.m., sometimes it's four or five four, shows, five in, shows, a shows in a day. Yeah. People have no idea, yeah. and then they see you enjoying your life, like, oh, it must be easy being a musician on Broadway, being a Broadway actor. You did touring with Sting. Well, it was great for me. And uh, again, through some crazy circumstances, I literally went from selling candy on Broadway to playing in Sting's band. I had gone to Europe. I had auditioned for a small little group that was going to Europe for some jazz festivals. Uh, they actually hired another guitar player, but he quit. So I did it. And we were playing at a small little dive in Italy, and Sting was there doing a big concert and came to our show. Unbelievable. So I came back to New York, started selling candy again. One day my phone rings, and it's like, Sting wants you to audition for his band. So I was juggling my candy job and auditioning for Sting's band, and they were threatening to fire me from my candy job because uh -huh. kept, Sting kept saying, come back tomorrow, come back tomorrow, come back tomorrow. Uh, and I, as I say to people, I literally had to quit selling candy 
to play with Sting. I it, went from two weeks from selling Twizzlers to being on Saturday Night Live. Well, I love uh, Twizzlers. Yeah. So you went from selling candy to a really sweet gig. Yes. The way you look yes. at it. Then you write this book about your whole experience. And what I like about the book, and if you're a young person, you probably won't even know what this picture is. Mm -hmm. You ever watch a kid when you give him an eight-track tape or a cassette? I what do I do with this? I was producing a young girl, and she was maybe 14 or 15 at the time, and I mentioned something about a cassette. She said, I have no idea what you're talking hmm. about. Some of the first advice I got when I started writing this book, because it, it's got some uh, rock and roll stories Yeah, well, you know, it. the typical and, rock and roll, I get right, it. Right, and they're like... Don't try to write a book your mother's gonna like because then you're not gonna have a good book. So, well, actually, feel, my parents have uh, made it through the book, and it, it, well, they they allowed you to put a, your third grade picture yeah, in here. Yeah. Um, wow. Which, if you look at the shot, the shirt I'm wearing is a double-breasted shirt based on the monkeys because I love oh, the monkeys, okay. and I had my grandmother make a shirt because I thought Mike Nesmith was the coolest guy in the world. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> how how fast did you have to run home from school every day with that shirt? <laughs> Well, we got some interesting pictures. I love the old pictures when yeah. people uh, show them. What made you decide to actually put a book together? Well, it's funny. I uh, I had a lot of, I had all my itineraries from the tour and news clippings and all that and scrapbooks. And I had, always had this fear, fire, flood, whatever, I'll lose all these this memorabilia. So one day I said, I'm going to digitize every piece of memorabilia I have. I, uh, so I started scanning. And as I did it, I thought, hmm, I think there's a story here. And I, yeah, I constantly tell war stories, anecdotes at cocktail parties or whatever. And one friend said, you really need to write this down. So I did. I wrote the book in a journal format. It's just like going out on the road with us. Yeah. See what happens every country, every date. You know, it's... Uh, it's very easy to read. Well, I, I tried to write a fast, breezy yeah. read. It's like... I, I've tried to write a book that I would like to read. It's not a music geek book. You don't have to understand music at all. It's really about... A little kid having a dream, moving to New York City, hitting the jackpot, and then trying to navigate success with uh, mixed results. With some of the people that you're hanging with back in a day, I'm surprised you're still alive. Yeah. Yeah. Really, well, seriously. Truly, I, I couldn't keep up with some of these unfortunately, guys. Unfortunately, no the in memoriam in the back of the book is a lot longer than I wish it was. There's oh. about seven or eight names of people that I was on the road with that are no longer with us. So. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, same thing in radio. There's yeah. guys that have passed away at a young age because they just couldn't control those mm -hmm. demons, uh, if you will. You know, well, the drinking, the drugs, and everything this else that goes book, along it gets, with it. Uh, very boozy, but there's the redemption at the end because I had to straighten out my life. So you did. It is, uh, the, the, the ending is about getting that under control because the road is one big party if you let it. And in fairness, Sting was doing yoga and eating oh, diet, yeah. great diet oh, the whole time. Yeah. Oh, okay. I never see the guy drink a beer. You know, He <laughs> kind of breaks the guy code. Yeah. Paul McCartney broke the guy code when he wrote Maybe I'm Amazed for Linda, mm -hmm. right? There's mm -hmm. always that one guy's like, yeah, thanks a lot. You're Paul McCartney, you're rich, you're famous, you got a lot of talent, you got looks, you got money, and now you make us all look bad where your wife is listening to the radio and stares at you. Why couldn't you write a song like that for me? Right. I'm not Paul McCartney. So we got you uh, with Sting, we got you on Broadway. I guess one of the big moments for you had to be live from New York. It's Saturday night. Talk about some of your experiences on Saturday Night Live. Well, and that was one of the first things we did. We did like one private show, two private shows in New York, then we did Saturday Night Live. And it was the season premiere. Steve Martin was the host. Oh, great. Um, Who was part of the lineup at SNL when you were on? Phil Hartman, Dennis oh, Miller, Dana Carvey, uh -huh. Jan Hooks. Chris Farley? Chris Farley was oh, not there God. yet. Not yet? Yeah, oh, this was 87. Okay. But the 
incredible thing was we're there doing sound check that afternoon and all of a sudden I kind of see smoke wafting through the, the the studio and I hear the fire alarm go off. Oh great. They're like please evacuate. Yeah. So we went downstairs the building was on fire and we didn't know if we were gonna do the show and we sat around for a couple of hours and then we rushed back up and did the show and typically SNL does a dress rehearsal at 8 p.m. and then they prune the show for the broadcast. I've read we were the only show without a dress rehearsal. Wow. And we just ran up there and did it. You were really, truly Saturday Night Live. Yeah, and it was, as I said to people, it's like, you know, I was brand new to the gig. I'd been there two or three weeks. I was scared out of my mind. The building's on fire. I mean, I was totally adrenalized before we ever played a note, but it ended up being a great experience. Now, you participated in, oh, nice segue. You participated in Amnesty International. Mm -hmm. Want to tell us a little bit about that? How did you end up doing that? Well, it was a part of Sting's tour. We dovetailed it. We had been out on the road for about nine months, and then we took six weeks from Sting's tour and joined up with, it was uh, Bruce Springsteen, the E Street Band, Peter Gabriel, Tracy Chapman. Oh, yeah. And Yusu Endura, Senegalese star. And it was an amazing experience because I ended up in Africa, a couple of countries in Africa, India, places that you would never end up typically on a, a rock tour, but because it was Amnesty International sponsored. Uh, it's great. We had 200 guys on an airplane going together. Bill Graham was our production oh, manager. Oh, Bill so Graham, had, yes, I remember him. You know, I grew up on the live at the Fillmore East, so yeah. I'm going, wow, there's Bill Graham, you know, and I'm looking around on the plane, and there's Clarence Clemens, and there's Peter Gabriel, and I just, even though I'd been out for nine, ten months, seeing, hanging out with Bruce Springsteen was pretty crazy. Yeah, that's kind of cool, right? You know, uh, there's a story in the book where I, I woke up, I was in Italy one morning, and I hear this cheering out of my hotel, and I'm like, is there a sporting event? What's going on? Some now? soccer match going I, that's on? That's what right. I thought. I went, Pope arriving? The window, I went and opened the window. Hundreds of people in front of the hotel. Bruce, 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 Bruce. Cheering for him. Wow. Surrounding the hotel. I was like, wow, I've never seen this. <laughs> what was it like hanging out with all of those guys on the plane? Did they talk to you or did, did you? Listen, you don't have to say any names. I'm sure that there were some that were approachable. Were there any that were like, get away from me? Well, the... the the cast system was alive and well. The stars and their management rode in the front of the plane. The musicians rode in the middle of the plane and the crew rode in the back. And everybody was happy with their little curtain communities. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I hung a lot out with uh, Mills Lofman, was a good pal. We'd spend yeah. a lot of time together, Bruce's guitar player. And Daryl Jones, who's now the bassist for the Rolling Stones, at the time was the bassist for Peter Gabriel. So Great bass player. Yeah, so, uh, you know, you're just hanging out, kicking around the world with Daryl Jones or Nils Lofgren or well, Clarence Clemens, it's a lot of fun. I would imagine that um, Bill Graham was the type that would go to all the different compartments. Yeah. He, he was always like that. I didn't interact with him very much, but I did see him yeah. interacting with yeah. the musicians. And, and what, 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 what Bill Graham loved was somebody that didn't take him so seriously mm -hmm. or wasn't intimidated right. by him. Right. I was at the Hard Rock Cafe, 1987, I think it was around there, right? For a station broadcast. And I didn't recognize who he was. Of course, I heard the name. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's Billy Graham and then Billy Graham. Right. You got two <laughs> Billy Grahams. That's true. I never which is that. really funny. But one's the preacher and the other right. is the concert promoter. Right. Right. But they're still in the same biz right. in, in many ways. Sure. And these guys wanted to reopen the Fillmore East. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting at the same table. All I want to do, I'm a, in my 20s, go to St. John's University. I just want to have my cheeseburger. Mm -hmm. So I ordered a cheeseburger. And you know as well. In the Hard Rock Cafe, even in the 80s, it was an expensive cheeseburger. Sure. That's all I wanted to do. So Bill is talking over me with these two guys. I go, I'll tell you what, I'm going to go to the bathroom. You can sit here until I get back because I know you guys want to talk. 
and they're talking over me. Walk to the bathroom. I come back. I go, hey, Bill, want to get up? I want to eat my cheeseburger. Mm. And he goes, oh, yeah, sure. And then everybody just stops, looks at me. Do you realize what you just did? I'm like, what? I, I want to eat my cheeseburger. That's Bill Grant, yeah. the legendary concert promoter. You told him to get up and move out of the way just like he was a regular guy. I go, you see, he is a regular guy. I address that in my book that it's, it's a delicate balance because... You know, when you're around celebrities and stars, they want confident people that treat them as peers. You know, you need to genuflate the time to your boss, as we all do. Right. Well, that, but, that's different but, if you work for them. Right. But, you know, if you're starstruck, you're out of there. That's so right. So you have to treat them just like one of the guys. Yes, yeah, exactly. You bust their chops, or that's what they want. Yeah. And the, the the harder you bust, the happier they tend. Oh, I know. It's amazing. I, I, I t had one guy, he goes, Zach, it's unbelievable. You treat them all like crap and they still come back for more. <laughs> New HD is a unique media platform giving a means of expression to millions of individuals living on the autistic spectrum as well as other additional needs. Talent meets opportunity on New HD, where the neurodivergent community is given a voice in an environment adapted to their needs. For more information, follow us on Twitter at New HD Radio. Follow BFA on Facebook at Big Fat America. Zach Martin on Twitter at Zach Martin Rocks. And Zach Martin on Instagram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, Zach is on Instagram? I can guarantee he has no clue how to use that. See all the interviews and videos at ZachMartinRocks.com. Hot off the press from Maybelline, New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Cocoa Zing, and more, an extra-large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lifter Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.